I hope you all had a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving. Yeah, as I sit here in my garage editing the 15th conversation I've had for this podcast, I'm coming to understand what people mean when they talk about celebrating gratitude. Yeah, to be honest, I'm not someone who has consciously kept that in the front of my mind. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Unconsciously, I've always been grateful for the good life I have, and I've tried not to take anything too much for granted. But I admit 2020 has tested my mettle. And when you're facing trials and hardships that can be overwhelming, you know, like being out of work for a long time or missing contact with friends and family, it's really important to remember that there are still things to celebrate. You know, for me, it is still being able to put food on the table, having good friends I can reach out to for advice, or having my wife and kids around to talk with. This Conscious gratitude reminds you every day that some things are okay and that helps fuel the fire that keeps your engine moving and may be just the relief valve for some of those fears and concerns to help keep you pushing forward. So I'm going to try to practice a little conscious gratitude on a daily basis just to help keep things in perspective. Susan Carlin is an award-winning journalist in Los Angeles who writes about the nexus of science, technology, business, and the arts. She's a regular contributor to Fast Company, where she covers space science, autonomous vehicles, and the future of transportation. She's also reported for the New York Times, Scientific American, Wired, Discover, and NPR, among other outlets. Hey, Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So uh, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you've done. So I'm a journalist. I primarily write about science, technology, and arts. And most of my work right now is showing up in Fast Company, where I'm covering space science, future of transportation, um, some of the Elon Musk companies, that sort of thing. Right now I'm working on a piece for Air and Space Magazine on uh, new fuel gauge technologies for uh, space flight. And so a lot of my stuff lately has been really technical, but in the past, I've done a lot of the nexus of science and art. So I've covered visual effects and oh, cool. a creative process where I've interviewed showrunners working on science fiction and they might have a science background or the science behind certain science fiction, like the, That's cool. the Tron or whatever. And so I've written for the New York Times, Scientific American, Discover, done stuff for NPR, um, yeah, nice. I've been doing this a very, very long time. We, we have some crossover between my experience in animation and being uh, part of the Visual Effects Society. and Very cool. Did you, um, did you start out to be a journalist uh, in your training? Is that the formal background? Or no, did you fall no. I was, I was supposed to be a doctor because I'm Jewish and that's the law. <laughs> and I, that was what I was going to do. And I found that I loved I was always equally good in sciences and arts so I could have done any number of things professionally um I loved science um the memorization of pre-med yeah. was <laughs> oppressive and especially for a creative kid because I was also do acting in school productions and yeah. writing for the school newspaper and 
and doing photography and I also do art. And so I, I was sort of bouncing all over the place and in sciences and arts are a little closer together now than they were um, back in the Jurassic era when I was going to school. And oh, yeah. no, absolutely right. I love telling, I love telling the kids what it was like without computers um, <laughs> and, and watching them have like mini meltdowns. Um, but there was, what do you mean there was no internet back then? That's right. We had to do right. things like go to yeah, libraries no. to look things up when we wanted information. Oh, I, let me tell you something. I, I've talked <laughs> a lot in the third world, and I um, was talking with a young Bedouin girl in Jordan um, one time, and I was explaining to her what it was like when I was growing up, and I said there was, there were no, there was no internet, there were no cell phones, there was no faxing, there was no... Um, there was no digital television. There was no satellite television. There was no, and I'm like going on this whole list and her eyes wide. And she said, Oh my God, that's like here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So wow. when you're getting, when, yeah. When you're getting this kind of like disbelief from people in the third world where, <laughs> yeah. going, how did you manage? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Mike, Mike, Kids will never know what a typewriter really is. They've seen one distantly on a shelf at a Staples when they were very little, but they don't know what it's like to actually have to, you know, plan in advance and do those kind of things because it's all been computers for them their uh, entire lives. Oh, yeah. My, my favorite thing to, to watch at Burning Man is all of the um, 20-somethings having absolute meltdowns, like trying, I can't get service on my phone. <laughs> you know but isn't that part of the idea is you're out here on the playa so that you well, can get away from yes. things like that yes and <laughs> no farts like will revel in the fact that that they're you know that we can get step away from our screens for two minutes um but they have to you know pics or it didn't happen so they have to just have stuff on their instagram account and to show that they were in fact there. They can't just say to someone, Hey, I was at Burning Man or I was right. You know, right. The so, fully, the fully qualified life. Everything exactly, has to be documented. Exactly. And honestly, I don't want people looking, seeing how I look at Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> how long, so how long have you been a journalist and writing about science? So I started writing uh, um, semi-professionally in college in the eighties okay. and, um, and then got a job at a newspaper a North Jersey regional daily afterwards. And then, um, shortly thereafter, uh, started freelancing after that. And, I'm, um, the, the thing I liked about freelancing is that I was interested in many, many different topics and I, I could never focus on just one thing. I was always interested in learning about many different types of subjects. And so freelancing enabled me to be able to do that. And so I would write about business and science and arts and entertainment. And while I was doing this, I was doing stand-up comedy in New York and I was acting and I came out to LA to act and got a couple of bit things on television, but I yeah. tried so hard in acting that my journalism took off. And cool. um, <laughs> yeah. That's and funny. so I have for okay. me, it's, I have the same. I have the same story, except it's computers. I came. I I was born and raised in New York. Wanted to be an actor. I studied at New York High School Performing Arts. Um, I came out to L.A. to do TV and movies. Had a little bit of success, but all, through it all, I was going to make a living uh, programming computers. So, and and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least you picked the career that makes money. <laughs> 
And yeah, that was that was the goal. My my growing up, my dad was a waiter, and I said I don't want to do that. I I don't want to do was that. Was he an to actor myself. as well? No, he wanted he 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 came from a very different era. Um, so when he was growing up, of course, his parents, uh, who were first generation immigrants, owned a a small restaurant, and for them, you know, kids were there to work in the family business. It was not. We have kids because we love them and we want to cherish them and nurture them. It was we had kids because they have we need somebody to plow the fields, right? Kind of thing. And so his ambitions were to be a, a singer, and he was actually pretty good. I heard some of his early recordings from from when he was in his probably early twenties. Um, but for them, it was no, absolutely not. You have to come here and work the family business. And then, of course, when his father passed away, rather than passing the family business down, his mother sold it. <laughs> so yeah it was it's the the rocklands have an interesting uh, history all by themselves as well um and so you know he was left in this in this place where he didn't really have the opportunities he was hoping for yeah. and um and so but he you know he worked very hard his entire life and he did a really good job of ultimately giving us what we needed to get by so i, I completely appreciate everything he did for us Oh, yeah, that's great. But that's also where you get your creative side, too. You got your performing side. Yeah. Yes, you're you're right. You're absolutely um, right. Yeah. And and actually, all of those experiences with the even though the, the acting career didn't work out, it was still it gave me incredible tools to interview actors. I could speak them, mm-hmm. speak with them about uh, their approaches to acting in a way that someone who hadn't been on an audition or, or performed in front of a camera or performed on stage knew would be able to talk about. Of course, now everybody lives on camera these days, but in That's those right. days, right. That's right. Um, and before the pandemic, I was uh, covering and running and pr- producing and moderating panels at Comic-Con. And, oh, nice. And and I had all these improv tools in my, right. you know, the, the journalism enabled me to craft a presentation, but the acting and the stand-up skills enabled me to flow with uncertainties and or, or riff off what people were saying or yeah. in case things went wrong. Um, a- absolutely. You know, any, that, any, anybody who wants a, any kind of public speaking in their career should take acting classes at some point. And improv both. Yeah. 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 It's invaluable. And so my mother used to say no knowledge is ever wasted. She probably, um, she probably got it from somewhere because she was always, <laughs> she was always coming up with amazing, amazing lines. And I'd be like, that's such a great line. And then I'd find out, Oh, that came from King Lear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Right. I, okay. I <laughs> I, I live with that. I live by that same philosophy. My children have taken to referring to me as useless knowledge man because oh, that's, I. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. No, I. You know what? I dive into everything, but my tagline, whenever they use that, is "It's only useless until you need it." <laughs> right. And I can right. come up with stuff at times where they're like, "How did you know?" I said, "I I saw it somewhere once, and it just kind of sunk in." Oh. But yeah, I'm. I, I I love that kind of philosophy where you know I want to know about everything you know not not just what my job is but I want to understand what the business does and how the business operates. It's just a sign that you care about what you're doing and about the world around you. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the things that I liked about journalism because it just enabled me to indulge my interests. 
doing a story that I had no interest in doing, all of a sudden I'd find something interesting about it and be like, oh, I never knew that. And so after a while, you accumulate this vast well of knowledge that can come in handy, even if it's years down the road. I did a story where I was going to, I traveled all over the world and I was going to the Canadian Arctic and I had pitched a story. This was for IEEE Spectrum, which was the okay. uh, Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. And it's a really yeah. good, I guess, trait. You'd know about it being a... Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know about that. Right. One of the two premier trade publications for the electrical engineering and computer industries. I think. Yeah. So I knew from my trips to Jordan that there was a rift between the elders and the young people. Um, that the young people were ignoring the the ways and the teachings of the elders. And I knew that Inuit society was similarly structured in that it used to be that the, the elders commanded a lot of respect and that respect was waning as a result of the internet. And this is what I'm talking about is that I took something that was going on in you know one side of the planet and I applied it to the other side. And sure enough, that's what was going on. This was my first radio piece because it was for the, the podcasting section of Spectrum. And I brought a, a kit with me. It was the first time I was using it. Um, I got, I had a really bad cold because I've been sick on every continent. I've, <laughs> every continent, I've been sick on every continent. And so I was in this Inuit village and I said, I ran into the first person I met. I said, hey, I'm doing this piece and I need to talk to a town official. She said, I'm a town official. I, what do you want to know? And I was like, great. And it was about how they were using the internet to learn about their traditional ways and then teach the elders about computers. And they were sort of fighting fire with fire and using the internet that was causing the rift initially to then tie their the generations together. So what's your favorite story? Okay, my favorite story was being at JPL um, when the Mars rover landed. When oh, cool. That was like, that was my absolute favorite thing. It it felt like the center of the, the entire world was watching. Yeah, it yeah. was electric in the room. When we've got those first images back from landing, the place erupted. It was sheer pandemonium. And um, yeah. And, and so I, that was, that was the device that wrapped itself in the airbags and, no. and bounced its way down. No. No, 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 no. Those were the earlier ones. The Okay. Was, yeah, this was the the one where they had, I don't know if you saw the video, seven, se- 7 Minutes of Terror. It was the sky crane landing. Oh, okay, yes. I yeah, remember it that was, now. It was insane. It was like they lowered it and then kind of dropped it to the ground. And, okay. But it was this, like, this sequence of crazy maneuverings. And, um, and like they knew it would work mathematically. And they had yeah. tried it in earth conditions, but you can't really practice this in the ultimate real life conditions. Yeah, you know, it's true. You have to approximate. And, uh, and they were like, it works. It works in calculations. So how did life change for you uh, professionally when the pandemic came down? Well, when the pandemic hit, all of my editors were scrambling to figure out what to cover because all of the assignments that people had, that I had, just pitches that I'd done suddenly got scrapped because everyone was chasing COVID. And I had said, please let me cover the medical part because 
I was pre-med. I've written about medical uh, research. I know my way around this. And they said, no, we have people covering it. But what we really need are stories on masks. Okay. So I started doing stories on masks, which turned out to be this jolly romp through material science. Yeah. And I had taken chemistry and there was physics in there. And so I, I was like, oh, okay, I get this. Um, and so I sort of plunged into the whole material science about it and did a couple of stories on COVID fighting mask technology and textile technology. Interesting. And I thought this is not that interesting for people, but whatever. And it turned out to be this really, this story took off and someone did a podcast with me and. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, the masks are probably the single most important thing we as individuals can do right now to protect ourselves. Right. So it's, which is all the more reason why it's such a shame that we can't get people to smarten up and wear masks. So. Well, we're the only country that politicized it. Yes. I, I have a friend who's based in Taiwan and he was posting the other day that everything is normal here because when it started, Everybody immediately locked themselves down, put their masks on, and they knocked it down, right? Which makes sense, but we turned it into politics, and that's why the numbers are crazy right now. One of the reasons why the numbers are crazy right now. But I was contacted by every kind of mask manufacturer, and so they were like, can we send you samples? And so I got a few, um, you know, samples with copper threads and... And so it's been one that um, has like earpieces in it with Bluetooth yeah. so you can hook it up to your phone. <laughs> it's all crazy kinds of stuff. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm uncovered on the on the mask. There was still a lot of space stuff that was going on this year, yep. and so I've been covering the Mars rover, James Webb Space Telescope, um, this Sentinel launch. Uh, I did a big piece on Tesla in advance of battery day. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, um, and so I've been sort of doing a lot of that. There was a lot of every, every few months, the, the, what people were interested was changing. You know, I had made contacts with editors and then their budgets dried up or their directives had changed. And then as a side gig, it happened that my best friend, who's a um, who's a comic illustrator and he does very well. And he was, he had just bought a house. He's at okay. an organized studio. And I'm like, you need someone to organize your studio and move it to your new house. And I need a okay. gig. <laughs> so I started working for him and it's worked out really well. And but cool. because I, and I was always over at his place. And so he was the person that I quarantined with, for, you know, because we weren't, seeing other people but i would stop by his place a few times a week to load my car up and to help organize and stuff and so it ended up being even though it, it ended up being something where where you know two best friends could kind of help each other uh, you know monetarily organizationally and just sort of mental health wise we would just have another person that we could so we weren't completely isolated yeah that's really yeah cool. Yeah. And um, so that's that's how I've I've stayed afloat, and then I've just been doing that plus the the stories, um, and uh, so so that's how I've been able to to weather the pandemic financially. 
have have things on the journalism side for you stabilized anymore or is it just it's things are rough because the outlets are having a hard time and so they're just not hiring as much the outlets have uh the outlets are all squeezed all of their budgets are squeezed and so they're not paying as as well and um also it it depends on the kind of journalism that you're doing i mean i Science journalism, I, I'll get really involved. And in order to present science journalism, uh, clearly, you have to really understand the subject. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of learning. And and so they're not often the most cost-effective stories. Probably the, the more cost-effective beats are maybe service journalism or listicles or... Uh, I'm seeing a lot of, um, but I could, I could be wrong in that. Um, or the quick things where you're sort of rewriting press releases and yeah. you're, or you're chasing yeah. the trend or whatever and repurposing from other yeah. um, sites. And I think that if you are the kind of journalist who really kind of dives in, it just, it's less and less cost effective. Do you, do you think that will turn around someday or do you think that's just the new normal? No, no. I think that, and this is a little bit what scares me with journalism is that there used to be, you'd learn your craft and you'd sort of learn from older, more experienced people. Yeah. And, yeah. And you learn not to plagiarize. You learn, you'd learn to make sure that if you talk to us, one side, you would make sure you get the other side's point of view, and you're slowly seeing that erode. And also, journalism has has changed; like the tone of it has changed. There's a lot more um, first person, like your own opinion. Yeah. yeah. Is, well, there's you know that's, there's the ultimate out. Everything is an outlet for people to express their own opinions now. Yeah, so. or everything is a way for you to you have to sort of be branded into that story. Yeah. And I yeah. a little more old school where I try to step out of it or if I'm in it, I'm in it in a more subtle way. Yeah. And I'm so because a lot of times people are um, not getting that training and just immediately jumping into yeah. creating their own media site or whatever that they're not getting that training. And so that's when you get misinformation. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and it's a it's a shame. It used to be like a trade and there was sort of an apprentice element to it or, yep. and you'd work your way up, but there's such an emphasis on youth and a point of view of youth that, which is fine, except that they're not getting, they're not always getting the skill sets. Um, yeah. And I'm, this is a very generalization because there's also at the same time, some amazing journalists right. coming from younger sectors and really fascinating narrative types of journalism. And so at the same time, this, it's a very exciting time, journalism. I, I totally agree. I find the, I find a lot of the way journalism is done by new media outlets, uh, companies like Vice, for example, oh, yeah. um, are amazing to watch in the way they're covering yeah. and, the, and, and where they're doing true journalistic work. Um, it's very brave. The biggest problem I find, feel is an edu uh, the point of an education on the part of the consumer because I think people don't understand the difference anymore between journalism and entertainment 
right? The the barrier broke down a long time and ago. And exposition. Yeah, yeah. And and so now people look at things and say it's journalism because it's presented in a way that looks like news, but it's not. It's commentary and it's entertainment. And in the meantime, they're ignoring the sources, you know, the Associated Press, the Reuters, the the real journalistic outlets that are presenting you with information in an unbiased uh, way. Um, and they just, they don't pay attention to those. And so they, and then they, and then to make it worse, they go off into their individual corners and only listen to the things that match their beliefs anyway. Right. So people don't question their own beliefs anymore either. Right. Yeah. And I'm, um, uh, I was always surprised that people wouldn't know the difference between news that was more misleading and, or more neutral. Yeah. And, but yet people don't because there is, in fact, a training involved in that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I blame, I, I half jokingly blame 60 Minutes for this because it was the first show that blended entertainment content and news content in the same show. And it was successful. So all of the networks turned around and said, hey, news doesn't have to be a loss leader anymore. We can now make profit on it. All we have to do is make it entertaining. And that kind of killed it, right? Because there was a time when, at least in the case of broadcast journalism, uh, there was a a sense of civic responsibility to give something back to the people for the use of the airwaves. Mm -hmm. And so you had a balanced news that had integrity to it. And a lot of that is gone now, right? And and the consumers just don't understand the difference. My my son is a journalist. He graduated from Cal State Fullerton a couple of years ago with a journalism degree, okay. and he's and he's writing for a blog, uh, a game blog, Game Rant, online. And so you talk about uh, the, he both he writes and he edits for them, uh-huh. and you talk about the young perspective and how hard it is to make a living in journalism nowadays, yeah. right? Because in in his case, it's truly it's like gig economy kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You get you know ten dollars per story kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. I mean, at, the thing that drew me to journalism was, uh, to me, it's like mental traveling. I go in, I visit a world, I sort of get to try it on a little bit. And then I go and visit another world and I flip. And that's the thing that I really love about journalism, because you're getting to learn about all different types of things. Um, the way I got into it was really interesting. I was in college and I wanted to meet a rock band that I was a big fan of and I went and I got an assignment from my school newspaper and went and did the interview and came back and went through the editing process and realized at the end of it that I loved the whole element of it I loved setting up the interview and going and meeting the people and hearing their stories and and then going and tinkering with the words and getting input from the editor and the whole process. I love the whole process. And that's when I knew, like, that's when I knew when I was onto something yeah. that wasn't just because yeah. I went, cause I was like, Oh, I wanted to meet these people, but that was, that wasn't what I took away. That was like one element of a greater whole that I really enjoyed. And, and since then it has, it's afforded me some really fascinating adventures. Yeah. That's very cool. The other thing is what I got into, I spent, um, before the pandemic hit, I had spent about six years kind of putting my journalism career a little bit more on the back burner because uh, I had been writing and making a living full time and it was fine. 
And then my mom got sick. My mom got pancreatic cancer. And, um, and my dad had the beginning stages of dementia and my sister and I spent, I was flying back and forth and I, we were helping them clean out their house at 50 years, moving them to an independent living facility up near where my sister lives in Boston. And, and then when my mom passed, I spent five months with my dad shepherding him through his grief and helping my sister kind of trans shut down my mom's life transition over to my dad's life, setting up a social network for him. And it was, it's one of the hardest thing. It's one of the hardest and most profound things that I've ever done. And I came out of it a different person than how I went into it. Um, and, and then since then I would fly in to help out my sister and relieve my sister and take care of our dad when he had to go through various surgeries. And so this was like, things were calming down. He's doing okay. I thought, okay, I'll start rebuilding my, my career back up from this. I had a trip lined up to, I was going to work at a comic convention in Italy. So I had a trip of, and, um, a free trip to Italy lined up. And, uh, and then I was, I had a bunch of presentations to do at WonderCon and I was going to do stuff at San Diego Comic-Con at Burning Man. I like my entire year was lined up and then the pandemic hit. And so all of a sudden I felt like I had been in this cage of this, of obligation. And now I was going to be let out and all of a sudden everything shut down. So a lot of what this year has been about was survival and gratitude and, um, kind of facing a lot of thoughts that I was constantly shunting to the side. I'm not good when I sit with my own thoughts. It's always a very dangerous thing. And so all of a sudden I'm spending a lot of time alone. Um, My routine was disrupted because I used to like work and then I go to the gym at the end of the day. That was my button on the day. And and it was like my social life in a way I had interaction with other people. Suddenly that was gone. Yeah, I understand. And so it's sort of been, I've been walking or trying to do yoga videos, not quite the same thing. And so there was a lot of that readjustment. And my sister had to take our dad from his facility because they were locking it down. And so we were dealing with that, with, you know, he was adjusting to the change and we had to get him new dementia meds. And, you know, there was just a lot of a lot of stuff at the beginning of the pandemic that was going on and, and just being separated from friends and family. You don't realize, I didn't realize until this year, how much activity I had created throughout the year to sort of break up any kind of monotony, monotony. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it happened organically. So like every two months I would have something on top that would get me out either comic convention or Burning Man or some interesting experience that had me on the road for a story. And all of a sudden that was all taken away. Yeah. I, I can completely relate. My life changed the end of 2019 when I was laid off from my job. And then of course the pandemic hit, which meant finding a new one was pretty impossible. And a lot of my friends and my, my outside focuses in life were around work. 
So even when I wasn't working up in the San Fernando Valley anymore, I would still go up there to see people on a regular basis. And then that came to an end with the pandemic. Um, and so it's been really isolating. Even though I'm here with my family, you know, Zoom just goes so far. And I was talking to somebody in one of the earlier podcasts who said something that I hadn't thought of before, but struck me as being really profound. And, and that was the little stops in the middle of the day when you're walking through the office between meetings or whatever, or grabbing a cup of coffee and chatting for five minutes really helps relieve the tension of the day. So when you're sitting like on six hours of video calls all day, and you're absolutely exhausted and climbing the walls afterwards, it's because you don't have those little interruptions and breaks in between that, that help shift your mind into something else, right? It's definitely been a, the year's been really challenging. I, under, I, I appreciate your, your family issues as well. My, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but my dad was in an assisted living facility and um, he locked down in there starting in you know March. And fortunately, everybody was healthy, so COVID never got in, but we couldn't go in to see him either. And he had dementia as well. So trying to do an occasional FaceTime with him was really challenging to just try to talk to him and keep in touch with him. And he passed away a couple of months ago while in there. And so we hadn't, I hadn't seen him in like six months yeah. prior to that. And that was kind of a brutal thing. Not not being able to have the level of contact was was the hardest part about it in the end. Yeah, I think this really drove home how social um, humans are and how necessary yes. it is for mental health. Um, the other thing is that I really thought that there was going to be a breakdown in society initially because I immediately thought, oh, the supply chain is going to break down. And then I live in an urban area and I said, it's only a matter of time before people start going from house to house, trying to get your food. You know, I really envisioned that happening. And oh, okay. I was terrified. And I'm, I was wow. really thinking, where can I go to? Where can I drive to? Who can I, uh, who do I know who owns guns that I can go huh. I mean, it was really like, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I, because I was envisioning this real dystopian breakdown in society. Now, as soon as I saw that, the stores were going to remain open. The supply chain was in place and people had food. I went, then I relaxed. But yeah. the initial I, two weeks, I really thought, oh my God, this is going to be an apocalypse. Interesting. I, I spent the first couple of weeks, actually, I spent the first month or so literally every day looking at the numbers with a calculator and saying, okay, it's only, it's only one and a half percent. Okay. It's only 2%, right? And that convinced me in my own head that this is not the civilization ending pandemic that's going to wipe out 80% of the population and that we'd be okay. And whether, you know, that was literally how my brain worked in the beginning of this. I sat there every single day and said, okay, total number of cases reported, total number of fatalities, total number recovered, and did the math and came up with the percentage and said, okay, 1%, 1.5%, that really sucks. But, you know, that's in a in 330 million people, it's not the end of the world kind of thing. And it helped me sort of get through it. Um, so, but I hear you, the, you know, I was surprised at the way supply chains broke down um, in the early days and the things that became unavailable, like the lack of an ability to get paper goods to the stores, or there was a period of time about 
two months ago, three months ago, where there were certain canned goods that you couldn't get in the store. And I'm like, why is soup and canned tomatoes all of a sudden a problem in the system? So it's been very strange, um, some of it. Uh, hopefully there are people taking notes and learning lessons so that when we come out the other side, we can fix some of these things. Because unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the last pandemic we're going to see. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I felt really frustrated about was I, I was like, I can use my journalism to get messages out there. And I wasn't being given that opportunity. So when I ended up writing about masks, seeing how popular that article was, it made me feel good that I could kind of contribute to the helpful knowledge that was being put out there. And um, yeah, what this year really taught me about was sitting down and, and facing my own internal demons and thinking about what I really wanted to do with my life. Now, I was already going through that because of being around my parents and also being around uh, when I lived with my dad, it was at an assisted, it was at an independent living facility. And so I was, yeah. I was around all of these older people who had been thriving, had thriving businesses and like done stuff. And now they were just in a holding pattern. How do I, like, how much more time do I have left? What do I want to do with that time? Um, and it wasn't about how do I make my mark? It was like, what do I, what makes me truly happy? And how can I fill the rest of my time with those things that make me happy or that I'm passionate about? The other thing I was already aware of, um, living in gratitude, but it really made me do it more because I was just very aware that there were people in much worse positions than I was. So Every time I started to get frustrated, I'd be like, you know what? I have income coming in or I still have fresh food available or I still have, you know, I'm, I have a roof over my head. And it got very, very basic because there were people out there who were not having that as a result of the pandemic. Right. The other thing that I was doing is I have pet snails and i had pet snails before they were a thing to do for the pandemic so uh, are are they a them. thing now i didn't Apparently know pet snails are. were ever a thing yeah, they don't, <laughs> okay yeah. and they're like little science it's like a little science zen garden and okay I like that. fascinating to watch i've learned a lot about them having them and uh and i experiment with different foods you know i give them different foods and um sometimes i'll hold them on my hand and let them poke their heads in and out of a stream of water take a shower okay. a snail shower um, or i do like cute little photography okay. yeah so i have this this little troop of snails and um and just taking care of them sort of got me out of myself you know making sure that yeah okay. um that's cool. And yeah, so like how people have pets. I went out to the Bonneville Salt Flats for Speed Week with um, met up with some burner friends, and which is when uh, Speed Week is when people bring out their homemade jalopies and race them. And I had never, oh, cool. I'd always wanted to see the salt flats. And then I just did a big loop. And then I went to Reno and visited some more burner friends and Lake Tahoe to visit my cousin. And so it was 1500 miles in a week and it wow. was the best thing I could have done. I, you know, was much healthier when I came out. Very cool. So road trips, I think are essential. We should probably wrap up. Uh, is there anything I could plug for you? 
Oh, I, I have, I have nothing, I have nothing going on to pitch or plug or if you want to say hi, I'm, my Twitter account is at Sue Carlin, S-U-E-K-A-R-L-I-N. If you've been having periods of depression or self-doubt um, or tremendous fear through this episode, it's okay. It's normal. And to reach out to other people that everybody's going through some form of it. And if they're not, I think there's something. They're lying. They're lying to you. Right. If they're telling you they're not and everything is fine all the time, they're, they're not telling you what's really going on in their lives because you're right. It's a roller coaster for everybody who's going through this. And to me, there's a little bit of comfort in knowing that it's not just me. It's the entire world. Um, yeah. The and entire... we should reach out to somebody else because we're all feeling it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And when this first broke, I was talking to people from all over the world, all my friends from all over the world. And everybody yeah. was going through something. It was interesting to hear how the countries were responding because they were responding very differently. But yeah. everybody was going through the, the fear and uncertainty. And I think that that the next shift will be normal plus, plus pandemic. It will be many, many years before things kind of even out again. And so it's not like as soon as you have the vaccine, poof, everything's going to go back to normal. Sometimes it's, you can't control everything. And sometimes it's just how you respond to a very difficult situation. And um, you can take steps to improve your life, but don't believe a lot of the hype of now's your chance to reorganize everything. Susan, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was really great talking to you. It was it was really nice conversation.